I'm back. Uh, uh, you know, I, I started three weeks ago in this uh, Kingdom Confidence series. I'm wearing a button-up. It's a big development. We got some supporters out there. Got a lot of people going, I don't care. God bless you as well. Yeah, no, I, I wanted you to think that I couldn't do it, and at the point that you thought I couldn't do it, I did it, just so that you wouldn't keep me in a box. Yeah, I worked really hard. I actually ironed it, but I think my iron's broken because I look just as wrinkly as when I started. So I haven't used that thing a lot. It's straight out of the early 1990s. Like, it's, it's an heirloom at this point in our family. But, uh, but yeah, I tried anyway. Okay, so we'll, we'll see the recommendations on the other side if I ever do this again. But, you know, we're, we're turning a new leaf here at Branches, and it's, it's stepping into a new season. And, and really, my hope in this series, as we started it uh, three weeks ago, is just that we would increase our faith, our sense of confidence, our sense of assuredness and security in the Lord. And uh, we've gone through a couple different topics unwrapping that. First week was obviously about the sufficiency of God's grace when we understand what Jesus has done on the cross and our relationship, one for us by Jesus, our relationship with God that we have, it just changes everything about how we go through life how we feel about life, the things we think about and care about. It's monumental. And then last week I talked about this confidence and this power that's derived from our power for unity with each other as believers. Because what does it say in the book of Ephesians? It says, Jesus, He Himself is our peace with one another. So there's all kinds of things we might disagree about. We might have differences in our world, and certainly our world brings that to the surface and the forefront. But Jesus is our peace. And he's more powerful than the differences and disagreements we have with our brothers and sisters. We can't undo what he has done. If he has reconciled us to the Father and reconciled us to himself, then he's given us a means to forgive and to reconcile with one another. We go into those differences knowing we will be one as a church. There's not multiple heavens. There's not multiple churches there's one church, there's one heaven, there's one faith. And that just gives us that strength, that assuredness through anything that we might face. This week we're talking about our confidence, our strength derived from the perseverance of the church. And that's a mouthful. Maybe you don't know what I mean. I don't mean the Reformed tradition belief tenant of perseverance of the saints. I'm talking about the perseverance of of the church. This idea that no matter what happens, no matter what comes against us in culture, there will be a group of people who will inherit God's eternal kingdom. It's an important time to assert that belief, to gain confidence around that belief, because we have as our backdrop, especially here in America, a lot of decline, a lot of spiritual decline. So let me just take you through a couple of my bleak statistics. That's what we're calling it now. We've coined that term on the other side of State of the Church. It's State of the Church. I shared a message. I shared some statistics about what's going on in our country right now. We talked about it later. Those are my bleak statistics. And uh, a lot of people, by the way, uh, you know, if you haven't seen the State of the Church, view it, because not all of you have. And it is a very important message, a timely message for all of us. It's pertinent for all of us, even beyond this branch's community. And some of you are like, you know, next year we just need to include that at a Sunday gathering because it's like that vital that people need to access it. Well, the truth is you can still access it. It's online. So please access it. 
And listen to me share these bleak statistics again, but from a different perspective. Uh, but it's real. We're facing real decline. In 2021, for the first time since they started tracking these bits of information, church membership declined in America below the 50% level. That's the first time in decades of tracking church membership in our country. Projections say that at the current loss that we have of millions of people identifying as Christians every year, so millions of people every single year in our country are saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. The projections say at the rate of decline that we have, we're going from about over 70% of the nation declaring that they believe in Jesus a couple years ago to by the year 2070, that number will be around 40%. 40% of our country will say they believe in Jesus. In the last 20 years, the average church in America dropped from 135 people in attendance to 65 people in attendance. So in the year 2000, you walk into a church, you got 137 people. You walk into a neighborhood church today, 2022, you're going to see 65 people in the seats. And in the light of all this going on, the decline, the challenges of culture, the hostilities, a recent survey conducted on pastors found that 42% of them are thinking about quitting their jobs right now. Oh, that's the problem. Because the truth is, if they quit their jobs, who's going to replace them? You know, is there a long line of young people saying, send me? I don't see them. I don't know if you guys know where those guys are and women are. I'd love to meet those individuals who want to step into future church leadership and service. It's not the most encouraging Data, guys. Uh, I'm sorry. Happy Sunday. The sun is shining. Perfect weather in Huntington Beach. And Christianity is in decline. You know, it's like, but I share the truth with you. I feel committed to share the truth with you. If, it, if you're exploring the faith, you're not a believer, I'm not going to sugarcoat Jesus for you. We're going to walk through the scriptures. I want to represent the faith with integrity. And for my brothers and sisters in the faith, I'm not here to just give you a pep talk and take you out of the world, you know, of, of what's actually happening. Let's face reality. I, I'm bound as a pastor to speak truth to all of you. And as we just chew on this, I think our first reaction is to go, well, why? What's the reason for this decline? And I have all kinds of thoughts about secularism and progressivism and nationalism and materialism and individualism. And now those are all kind of influencing together along with this like moral corruption and spiritual dilution that's really happening in the church where you know people are just not even standing by the scriptures in some of the churches of America and there's just moral failure after moral failure and things imploding like you put all that together and everything's kind of taken its little piece of the christian pie out of this culture but but even if you don't agree with me on that even if you go i don't understand the isms that you just said earlier that's fine. You don't need to understand the isms or agree with me that that's the cause. Maybe you have your own thinking around why the decline is happening. That's not what this message is about. The fact is, we're starting with this idea, there is decline, and it's picking up momentum. As you know from hosting a party, when one person decides to leave the party, suddenly you have an empty house. You know, like it's 10 p.m., everybody's having a great time. You know, we're still eating nachos at 10 p.m. Bad decision, but, you know, it's just raving. And then somebody goes, what time is it? It's 10. I better be leaving. I got an early day tomorrow. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, me too. And the, the house just kind of clears out. You know, like we human beings, we're constantly searching for security. It's one of the core things that really drives us. And 
A lot of times we'll look for that security in numbers. So if we're swimming with this school of fish and then we notice there's a larger school of fish over here that's passing by, we'll just jump to that school of fish. And it's not driven by, oh, I, I believe what this school of fish believes when I'm swimming with it or what that one does. Right? I'm choosing. It's just for the mere fact that that's a larger group of people. I'm drawn to it. And so there are going to be people in this next generation that it's not that they're necessarily leaving the faith. They're leaving the school of fish because people are leaving the faith. Where does that leave us today? We're in a strange spot. We all want the wind in our sails of a culture that supports us and excitement around what we're a part of. I think we would all wish for Hollywood movies to be made about our values and for cultural activism to be about the things that we care about. A lot of Christians today would say, I don't want Hollywood support. You know, I don't care if they're activists for my causes. You guys weren't saying that in the 60s and 70s. You loved it when you had some movies supporting your beliefs. You loved it when there was popular music on the radio that represented your belief system. The fact is, now that's gone. And we're left with that embarrassment of like, no, I don't know that we're really being as supported anymore in what we stand for. Who wants to be the last guy wearing Vans slip-ons when it's not cool anymore? <laughs> It'll probably be me when I'm 80 years old. I'll still be that guy, but... It's an uncomfortable spot to be in, to hold to something that's increasingly unpopular, to join yourself to what could be considered an old fad. And so serious believers today, I think, are going, wait a minute, what's the future going to entail? I think parents of the next generation of Christians are a little on edge, a little anxious about the future that their kids are going to step into. But here's the point I want to make this morning. It's that whatever happens, whether it's a continuation of these trends or maybe a slowdown of these trends or maybe a great reversal of enthusiasm in America, no matter what happens, our confidence and security is not derived from anything that's going to happen on that level. It is secure in the promise of God's kingdom no matter what happens. Our confidence is not going to be derived from the level of enthusiasm or the lack of it around us or the statistics that are positive or negative. It's going to be from the reality of the kingdom of God. That's where our true confidence is going to be found at all times. Let's discover that here in the book of Hebrews. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me? If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you so you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. The verses will also be on the screen. In the passage I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews is, a, is addressing a group of Jewish Christians who are tempted to return to their former traditions. Apparently, they had received Jesus as their basis for their relationship with God, but that at some point, the grace of God, the simple faith in Jesus began to be maybe too simple, and they were tempted to return back to their pride and their traditions and the religion that is really founded in the Old Testament Scriptures. So here in Hebrews, as in today, you have this potential trend away from the faith. The writer is appealing to these folks who are on the borderline, right? They're going, do I remain with faith in Jesus? Sort of like people are choosing today. Do I remain with Jesus or do I return to our old ways of doing things? 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go backward. Keep going forward. What you've received in Jesus far exceeds what you had in the old days. And he tries to make this point. He really argues for this point through these analogies that he's comparing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and they're symbolized in these two mountains. Mount Sinai, which was the place of God's first covenant with his people, Israel. That was the location where Moses, God's appointed messenger, went before God and went before the people and received the commandments, and there was this covenant, this spiritual binding relational agreement between God and man that was established in that moment. It was in that place of Mount Sinai. And he compares that as like their old Jewish traditions to Mount Zion, which is the mountain upon which Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, is perched. That's the place where the second covenant was born when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and God made a new binding spiritual agreement between he and his people. And the writer's going, look, that that first mountain was doom and gloom. It was darkness and distance. It was judgment and sin. But this new mountain that you're headed toward, it's filled with life. It's the heavenly city, both present and future, that you will inherit in Jesus. It's way, way better. Let's read it together here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, meaning it's not just a physical mountain, it's much more than that, and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them as it was in the Old Testament, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come through Jesus to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, that is Jesus. At that time his voice shook the earth at Sinai, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pause there this morning. As I said, the writer of Hebrews here, you can see it. He's appealing to these Jewish Christians saying, don't go backward away from Jesus into your ancient faith traditions, go forward with Jesus and in the faith that you have received. And he compares what they left to what they now have, starting with what they left in the Old Testament covenant and that setting of Mount Sinai. And when he describes it, he describes it as it was. It was a place of desolation. It was a place of darkness, of fire, of fear, of distance. A holy and perfect God was coming into relationship with this new nation of Israel. And this holy and perfect God was coming before a people 
who were carrying the weight of their sin and their shortcomings before God. And the people said, man, I am afraid to even be a part of this interaction. I don't want to speak to God. I don't want to hear from God. Moses, you listen to God. And even Moses, it says, God's appointed messenger, even he's going, man, I am terrified to the bone. It was there at Mount Sinai in that experience that God gave the means for his people to continue to relate to him through that covenant and the Old Testament laws and commands. But what we found through history, this is the story of the Old Testament, is that no matter how good and righteous those commands were, the universal human inability to live up to those standards revealed itself. Human imperfection showed itself over and over and over again, and that burden was too great to bear. So doom and gloom continues to be associated with that Old Testament law, that picture of Mount Sinai, that distance in relationship with God. And it's not because there was anything deficient about God. There's nothing wrong about the laws and the commands and the righteousness that was declared in the Old Testament. But the deficiency in human beings, that was revealed and that we could not match the standards of God. And so we still see this characterization of relationship with God today. Around the world, there are countless world religions that are working through prayers and deeds and sacrifices and penance over and over and over again. All these major world religions working to appease a God who cannot be pleased through all their works and through all their deeds. And so they're on this endless pursuit to receive a joy and a peace and a wholeness that they can never, ever get to. The distance and doom and gloom remains for so many billions around the world. Now, in America, I already established we're turning away from faith in Jesus. Where are we going? Because that was the same context here in the book of Hebrews, right? They placed their faith in Jesus. They were potentially turning away from faith in Jesus. Where were they tempted to go? They were tempted to go back to their traditions, their pride and their works, their religion. And he's saying, that's all doom and gloom. Is that the direction that we're headed? Is that where we're going as we're departing from the faith? No, we're... We're headed in a different direction as Americans. At our core, we desire pleasure and satisfaction among all things. Americans, we're hedonists. You know, we're, we're working for our happiness in all things. That's a greater value than anything else. So there's not really a place for doom and gloom. We, we want a God. If we're going to have a vision of God, it's got to be more uppity. You know, there, there's no temptation for us to take up Judaism or one of these other world religions that's really burdensome and it's going to sap a lot out of us and we're going to have to work super hard. That's not how we're tempted to turn, right? We, we, we like our God. We just don't like him with a side of doom. So as we're moving forward, the surveys that are watching people move away from Christianity, we find that they're not ticking, you know, a box of Judaism or one of these other world religions, they're ticking the box of none. They are the religion of the nuns, not the N-U-N, nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And I call it the religion of the nuns because it's not that they're atheists. They could select atheists. They could say, I don't believe in God. But the funny thing about this one third of the country, the fastest growing religion in America right now is nuns. They believe in God, and they say they claim to be spiritual. But none is a perfect designation for these people because they aren't going to Mount Sinai 
back to these old traditions of the world religions, and they're not going to Mount Zion. They're not remaining with this faith in Jesus. They're going to Mount Nothing. They're going to Mount Nothing because they believe in a vision of God who has no defined personality, who has no standards or values, who has no morals, who has no authority, who has no defined purpose. You know, they're, they're going someplace that is a spiritual vacuum. It's nothing at all. It's Mount Nothing that they're headed toward. And really, you know, that does away with the doom and gloom. That fixes our problem because we just say it doesn't exist. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no sin. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There's nothing. My God approves of basically every want and need and every inclination of my heart, and it's the God of their own making in their own conscience. Now, how spiritual is that? How developmental is that? Hmm. You know, to have the God of your own making approve of every single thing that you do. If only we could program our future spouses the way that we program God today. That would make life, like, super convenient. You know, if we were just the author of, you know, who we're going to be with, and we could just change all our qualities, and, and suddenly now things just work so much smoother, right? The same way we just have this free conscience before our Creator that we created. Right? But that's the problem. The same way you can't just look at another human being and redefine who they are, so you can't just look at God and redefine who He is on your terms. You can't look at me and, and say, Andrew, you know what? You don't really have the values that you have. You don't really stand for the things that you stand for. The only thing that exists about you is what exists about you in my head. I say, well, while you're forming me in your imagination, would you form me without a receding hairline and so I like running more than I do? This is really painful for me right now to continue doing this. It's preposterous. You can't define me in your own imagination. I am. I exist apart from you. And that's the same thing that you can't do with God. He is. He exists apart from you. He stands on his own. You're headed to Mount Nothing, but there is no Mount Nothing. That's not an option. That's a figment of your own imagination. There is no Mount Nothing. There is Mount Sinai. And without the provision of Jesus, you're an imperfect person coming before a holy God. It's Mount Sinai. It's doom and gloom. Just try that religion. Just try those traditions and see that you're going to be right back where you started with that distance and with that shame and with that guilt. And then there's Mount Zion. Through the provision of Jesus. If you fall into God's hands without the provision of Jesus, you're back at the mountain of doom and gloom with the weight of your sin upon you and justice demanding that you be judged. Justice demands, spiritual accountability demands that you be judged without that provision of grace. Now, I know that's really scandalous today. It's especially scandalous for the one-third of America that is the religion of none. You know, that's preposterous. We couldn't possibly have a standard. We couldn't possibly say anything is real except nothing. But it's increasingly uncomfortable even for Christians because that shift is taking place out of this school of fish into another school of fish. Right? But why is that so uncomfortable for us, this idea that there is spiritual accountability, that there is a need for justice, that wrongs should be righted? And this is one of the great human contradictions of, of human nature that if anything goes on in society, people are just like 
glued to their social media profile, just scanning, scanning, scanning for updates, or they're taken to the streets to riot if there's an unjust murder or death in this nation. We love Justice Served. It is like our highest form of entertainment and passion to see justice served in this nation. We love justice served unless we're the ones being served it. That's the contradiction. Unless we're the ones being served it. But the writer of Hebrews gives another way, a path toward Zion, a path toward not doom and gloom and distance, not a path toward nothing, but something of substance, of life, the city of the living God, where there is justice satisfied without us being the one being served it. And it's not this desolate mountain of religion. It's the city of God. It's not a place where if an animal touched it, they would literally be put to death because no you know, unclean flesh could come into the presence of a holy God. It's a city filled to the brim with people gathered together, more and more gathering together with thousands upon thousands of heavenly beings joining together in joyful assembly. It's the furthest thing from gloom. You know, that's the church of Jesus, of the firstborn of a new generation whose names are written and reserved in heaven. For through Jesus we have access to God. He's the judge of all, who the people couldn't even stand to listen to or be in the presence of. And now we can draw near to through this mediator of a new agreement, a new covenant that's through the sprinkled blood of Jesus on the cross that speaks a better word, the writer of Hebrews says, than the blood of Abel. What is this about the blood of Jesus versus the blood of Abel? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, you got two brothers early on. This is at the very beginning of the Bible. One brings a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. That's Abel. And Cain, his brother, brings a sacrifice that's unacceptable to God. So immediately there's spiritual envy and there's jealousy. And Cain commits murder against his brother. And God goes to Cain and says, Hey, where's Abel? I can hear his blood crying out to me from the ground for justice to be served. And that was a good word. The word that the blood of Abel spoke. Justice needing to be served. Just the same way the Old Testament commandments and standards and judgment. It's a good word. It's right. But the word of Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, there is a new covenant that is born. He came to see justice satisfied on our behalf. He paid our debts. He atoned for our wrongdoing and errors and sins. So whereas Abel's blood cries out for justice, Jesus' blood declares mercy through the cross. And that's what makes it better. It's through this new covenant, through the blood offering of Jesus, that our genuine distance and deficiencies are spanned. And we're able to enter into that blessed, eternal city. And this, not based on our righteousness, not based on, oh, you've had a perfect past, or you're more spiritual than that person, or you, you know, prayed more and you had these better deeds and works. It's all glory to God based upon the sufficiency of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's a freedom that's free, that's unavailable anywhere else. But the warning here from the writer of Hebrews is, don't miss this unbelievable invitation. Don't refuse the offer. The writer points out, if those in the Old Testament who were listening to a human being, Moses, sharing the words of God, if they didn't escape from judgment, 
How is it that you think you'll escape if you're now denying and refusing the invitation and the words of one who is from heaven? That is the Son of God himself. God shook the earth, the writer of Hebrews says in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, it was frightening. I mean, there, God demonstrated his power. But the prophet Haggai looked forward to a time, the time of Jesus that we're now in, when God would not just shake the earth. He would shake the heavens. He would shake the dry land. He'd shake the sea. And he'd shake all the nations of the world. This time, the writer of Hebrews suggests, it will be the shaking of everything temporary in this world. Everything temporary, everything created will be shaken away, and only what cannot be shaken, the eternal, will remain. And what is it that is eternal and cannot be shaken? Verse 28, it's the kingdom. The kingdom that we are receiving. And that is our kingdom confidence. Right now, it seems in America, faith is being shaken. But the kingdom of God is not being shaken. You understand that distinction? The faith is shaking in America, the faith of people, people's own religious beliefs and convictions. And I want you to know, I shared a lot of bleak statistics. Here's a positive one. This is a very American problem. Because if you look at the world, Christianity is growing. Even as we decline, the growth is such that it overcomes our losses and then some. There are more Christians every year around the world than are being born into the faith. I mean, we're outpacing just population growth. It's not just passing it on to our kids. People are being evangelized. The world is growing in terms of faith, but not in America. And we're talking about our country right now. This is our context. This is the waters we're swimming in. This is where the schools of fish are passing each other. And here, faith is being shaken. But the distinction is the kingdom of God is not being shaken. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at our future... You can hang your hat on those stats and you can hang your hat on the trends. There could be a wave of enthusiasm or there could be a cloud of apathy. But if you hang your emotions on those things, yeah, it's going to be shaky ground. What cannot be shaken? Our vision of the kingdom. Instead, it's going to be all these temporal realities. It's going to be these statistics. It's going to be the secularism and progressivism and nationalism and materialism and individualism and the moral corruption and the spiritual. That's the stuff that's temp That's the stuff that's been shaking the faith that's going to be shaken and it's going to be done away with. This religion of nothing. To build your life on those things is to build your life on the sand. It'll shift, it'll sink, it'll evaporate and be blown away with the wind. So no matter what happens, I move forward into the future with my eyes fixed on the kingdom with strength, with confidence. And for everybody else, they have their own choice to make. My generation has a choice to make. The next generation has a choice to make. America has a choice to make. I look at it as like anyone who places their faith in Jesus, you're on a road to the heavenly city of Zion, the joyful assembly of peace and grace and mercy. And what everyone else decides to do, that's their own adventure. And it's like, here's the message for America. Choose your own adventure. Here's the message to all my brothers and sisters out here today. Choose your own adventure. Some of you guys are going, what in the world are you talking about? There were books when I was growing up. It was like an early computer. <laughs> because you could, you could read the story and then it would say... If you're going to make this decision, go to page 63 and see how that plays out. If you make this decision, go to page 73. This is exhilarating stuff. 
in the 90s. I mean, we didn't have finer entertainment than Choose Your Own Adventure books. And really, it was, it's a fork in the road. If you, if you go this direction, it's a path, and it's going to lead to an ultimate end. And, and the decision that everybody else makes around me doesn't have anything to do with the decision that I'm, I've made, that many of you have made to walk in confidence toward that heavenly city. But for everybody else, could go this way, could go that way, choose. Choose your own adventure. You know, so many people are on the borderline just as they were in the book of Hebrews, and these people made a decision, and they've already lived with it. They've either, you know, joined that heavenly city, or they've gone back to the mountain of doom and gloom. Their story's already written, and now our story is to be written before us. Will you refuse the invitation of the one who offers it? Will you go back to the traditions of doom and gloom? Will you go back to some invention of your own imagination where you determine the standards and morality and the personality of God in your own one-person cult? Will you just believe and trust in the things then? No, I'll just put it all away. What my hands can hold and what my eyes can see until they don't see and they don't hold anything anymore. Or will you with thanksgiving, with awe and reverence, derive your confidence from this God who is a consuming fire. I have three responses this morning I want to walk us through in light of this message from Hebrews 12. Number one, repent and place your faith in Jesus. He's the only true security in this life because there is no security in your own righteousness, in your own works, and trying to earn God's love and go into ancient traditions. You can go to all the ancient traditions, try to find something in there that's going to work your way to God. Nope. There's no means by which to span that distance. There's no security in the invention of your mind. You're the one who made it. The only security that you can find will be found in Jesus. So repent. Change your life and place your faith and trust in Jesus. Don't redefine God. Let him redefine you. I think that's going to be one of the key things that differentiates Christians in this next generation, that very idea and concept, that distinction. Don't redefine God. Let him redefine you. That, that is what will distinguish us in this world. But there are so many people who are just going, well, what do I think about God? And they take a blank piece of paper and they go, well, I think he'd have this personality. And I think he cares a lot about this. It just happens to be what I like a lot. And, you know, I think he supports this decision I've already made. You know, whatever the outfall, you know, downfall of it, it's like, oh, he approves of that too. And they got this piece of it, and then they take their own life, and they say, well, who am I? And what should I live for? And they start writing on this piece of paper. And, it, and when you define yourself by yourself, the results are dissatisfying. They do not lead to a place of wholeness and completeness. And it's just more and more effort that you have to put in. You go, wait a minute, you know, later on, as you grow up, you go, well, that's all wrong. And so you erase and you say, well, how do I really feel I should be now? And you start writing. And no one just stops to think, hey, wait a minute, instead of critiquing what I'm writing on the page, why don't I critique the writer? Maybe what I'm writing isn't the problem. Maybe the definitions I'm giving isn't the problem. Maybe it's the definer. Maybe I don't have the capacity to be my own God. Maybe I'm not the creator of the things that I see before me, including my own life. And so we set down the page as believers, and we say, 
I'm not going to define God and I'm not going to define myself anymore. I am going to let God define me. God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews. He has a stake in everything. He says, this is all mine. It's not like I'm going to take all the religion of nuns and say, you know, guys, you guys are cool over here. I'm going to work with my people that said, you know, they're Christians, and I got their standards and their heavens over here, and you guys over here, whatever you deemed in your own mind, you know, you just handle that. He's a consuming fire. He says, I made it all. I made the whole world. I'm the God of the whole world. I'm the God over every single life. And he made a means to get to him. He made the means. And he says, choose life. Choose the city of Zion. Choose faith in Jesus. Not Sinai, not nothing. Choose Zion through faith. Number two, this is for those of you who are on that borderline. You're making this choice to faith. If you've never placed faith in Jesus before, choose today. For those of us who have decided or those who are making a decision today, this is my second point. I might have already said it in this series and I might say it again next week. Attach your spiritual well-being to God's unshakable kingdom. Don't attach it to cultural trends, what's a fad, or to statistics. Because it could be up, it could be down, and your confidence could be shaken. But when you attach your confidence to the unshakable realities of God's kingdom, you will not be shaken. For me, what happens in the visible institutions of the church, you know, that gets to me. What happens in the country and well, you know, that gets to some of you. What's happening in, with your school children, that gets to some of you. For me, it's the visible institutions of the church. When I see the church emptying or when I see the moral corruption and failings or delusion, I'm going like, ah, oh, man, what's the future going to be like? And that's when the anxieties and the concerns creep in. And it reveals to me, wait, where is my confidence? Is it in what is? Or is it in what will be? P.S., this is a message for parents out there. We do not need flustered, anxious Christian parents stepping into the future. We need Christians who are parents who are confident in their faith and in the kingdom of God. The contrast is going to be unbelievable for the next generation. It's just going to become all the more stark and distinctive. The faith will sell itself if we embrace the faith. Like, it will show itself to be valuable. We don't need to worry if we have something valuable. We have something of exceeding value that you'd sell everything in order to gain it. And if you have that vision for what you have, your kids are going to see that same value and vision. And so there's no need to get in the way with our anxieties and worries. And I know none of us is perfect, and I know there's a lot of challenges in the world, but the best thing we can do is demonstrate confidence. Confidence in the kingdom as we navigate the culture around us. Attach your spiritual well-being to that. And number three, commit to persevere on this journey of faith. Heaven is not a popularity contest, and it's also not a democracy. It doesn't matter what people say about it in our generation. You know, at the, at the, even if everyone's to fall away, and you're the last one standing in the faith in this world, well, guess what? That's where we all end up anyway when we're standing before God and giving an account of our life before Him no one else is around and nothing else that they want to chime in about is really going to be relevant at that point. So let's commit to persevering on this journey of faith, knowing the destination that we're headed 
toward. It might be a long road with a lot of pressures, but it's a long road to a city of grace and mercy and wholeness and rejoicing. The city of the living God. I want us to pray together as we step into this gift of confidence and security. I ask as we pray that the Holy Spirit would take those of you who are on the borderline. There were people on the borderline 2,000 years ago this writer was speaking to. Don't go back. Go forward in Jesus. I don't care if 9 out of 10 of the congregation is going back to these old traditions and you just feel the social pressure to move with that momentum. Go forward. There's no mercy. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction and peace that direction. It's this direction. It's the direction you were going in. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would bring that same encouragement and confidence to every single person in this room. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that there would be those who choose you this morning. They choose faith in you and your son, Jesus Christ. You don't choose to go back to Sinai in the distance and the gloom and the doom and the judgment. They don't choose to go to just this invention and fiction of their own mind. But they choose the substance, the life, the city of you, the living God. The city of grace and mercy by the sprinkled blood of Jesus that declares mercy over us. That does what we could have never done in our own strength. God, I pray that as we're at this crossroads and in every age and in every generation, at so many points in history, the crossroads is before us. The adventure to choose is before us. And I pray, Lord, that you give the strength and you give the courage for my brothers and sisters to choose again and again the path of life. You appealed, even in the Old Testament, God, the way of death and the way of life was set before people. You said, choose life. I want life for you. And Lord, I pray that you'd be prompting people by your Holy Spirit to lay down their definitions of you and to lay down the definitions of themselves because they can never yield life and let you redefine them by, the, by your Holy Spirit. So God, if people need to repent this morning and change their life and give their life to you and place their faith in your son Jesus, would that happen? God, for all of us who have what you help us to place our security and our confidence on the unshakable realities of your kingdom. Other things will be shaken. Your kingdom will not be shaken. And if our confidence is in your kingdom, then we will not be shaken. Or if there's people dealing with fears for their children and the future and the world and society and the church, give us a vision of your kingdom. The unshakable reality in Give us the strength and the perseverance to commit to walk this path out to its fruition, to its finish, where we get to experience that joyful assembly.